Appendix 2 of Home Education Series, Volume 3, School Education. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Home Education Series, Volume 3, School Education, by Charlotte Mason. Appendix 2. Some Specimens of Examination Work Done in a School Which the Pupils Are Educated Upon Books and Things. Class 2. In Class 2, the children are between 9 and 12, occasionally over 12. They have 21 subjects, and about 25 books are used. They work from 9 to 12 each day, with half an hour's interval for games and drill. Some Latin and German, optional, are added to the curriculum. In music, we continue Mrs. Kerwin's Child Pianist, Method, and Tonic Solfa, and learn French, German, optional, and English songs. But I cannot here give details of our work, and must confine myself to illustrations from seven of the subjects on the program. Children in Class two write or dictate or write a part and dictate a part of their examination answers according to their age. The examination lasts a week, and to write the whole of their work would be fatiguing at this stage. The plan followed is that the examination in each subject shall be done in the time for the subject on the timetable. I should like to say a word about the Greek and Roman history. Plutarch's Lives are read in classes two and three, and, as the children are usually five years in these two classes, they may read some fifteen of these lives, which I think stand alone in literature as teaching that a man is part of the state, that his business is to be of service to the state, but that the value of his service depends upon his personal character. The lives are read to the children almost without comment, but with necessary omissions. Proper names are written on the blackboard, and, at the end, children narrate the substance of the lesson. The English history book, used in classes two and three, is extremely popular. It is Mr. Arnold Forster's of about 800 pages, and is well known as a serious, manly, and statesmanlike treatment of English history. In no case is there any writing down to the children. Mrs. Crichton's First History of France is also a favorite though I should have thought there was hardly enough detail to make it so. Contemporary periods of English and French history are studied term by term. For natural history, Miss Arabella Buckley's Fairyland of Science and Life and Her Children, Mrs. Brightwin's books, etc., give scientific information and excite intelligent curiosity, while out-of-door nature study lays the foundation for science. The handy works of Class two are such as cardboard sloyd, clay modeling, needlework, gardening, etc. These, field work, piano practice, etc., are done in the afternoons or after tea. Question. Quote, ah, Pericles, though that have need of a lamp, take care to supply it with oil. End quote. Who said this? Tell the story. Parentheses, book studied, Plutarch's Lives, Pericles, and parentheses. D, aged eleven and a half, answer dictated. 
anaxagoras the philosopher said these words to pericles pericles was the ruler of athens and anaxagoras had taught him when a boy being ruler of athens he led a very busy life attending to the affairs of state and so was not able to give much time to his household affairs once a year he collected his money and could only manage his income by giving out an allowance to each member of his family and household every day this was done by evangelus his steward anaxagoras thought this a very wrong way of arranging matters and said that pericles paid too much heed to bodily affairs because he thought you ought to mind only about philosophy and spiritual doings and not about the affairs of the world to give an example to pericles he gave up all his household and tried to live entirely on philosophy but soon he found his mistake when he found himself starving and penniless with no house so he covered his head up and prepared to die pericles hearing of this went immediately to his rescue and begged him to live not because he thought death a misfortune but that he said quote, what shall i do without your help in the affairs of state End quote. and then anaxagoras uttered the words which are above meaning of course parentheses, though putting it in a very clever way in parentheses, that pericles was to keep him on the other hand he might have meant that he had been mistaken in his philosophy question tell the history of f d on a penny parentheses, book studied arnold forster's history of england and parentheses. c aged ten answer written by child the letters f d stand for the latin words fide defensor meaning the defender of the faith henry the eighth had a little while ago written a book on the pope who was clement the seventh saying that the pope was the true head of the church and every one ought to obey him the pope was so pleased that he made henry fide defensor it must be remembered that the king had married his brother's arthur's widow a spanish princess namely catherine of aragon and as they had no son henry wished to divorce her but the pope would not allow him to as he had given henry special leave to marry her at this henry was furious and began to think about the pope's words defender of the faith he would not act as he thought till someone suggested it so two men named cromwell and cranmer came forward telling the king to take the pope's words not as he meant them but as they really were as they stood the king was delighted and made cranmer a bishop and cromwell his wisest counsellor in fifteen thirty four parliament was called upon to declare henry head of the church all said he was except two men sir thomas more and fisher bishop of rochester these would not agree and were executed in fifteen thirty five if we look on a penny we see the letters f d which shows from the reign of henry the eighth till now the pope has not been allowed to interfere with england in order to spite the pope henry allowed the lutherans and learned men to come into england Question. What did you see in the seagull sailing up the Firth of Forth? Parentheses. Book studied. Geographical reader. Book two. End parentheses. G. Age nine. Answer dictated. And sailing up the Forth, we first of all see Leith, which is the seaport town of Edinburgh. Then we come to Edinburgh, 
the old and new edinburghs are built on opposite hills the valley in between is laid out in lovely gardens one thing very odd about edinburgh is that the streets look as if they are built one on top of the other on one end of the town there is a castle which looks so like the rocks and mountains it is built upon one can hardly distinguish it at the other end of the town there is holyrood where the ancient kings used to live we do not see many merchantmen because there are no good harbors there are a good many fishing smacks and pleasure boats as we go along we see women with big baskets with a strap across their foreheads and they are calling out collar herrings question quote, and jonathan loved him as his own soul End quote. of whom was this said tell the story of jonathan's love e age nine answer dictated this was said of david saul's anger was kindled against david and jonathan and david were talking together and jonathan had been telling david that he would do anything for him and david said quote, Tomorrow is the feast of a new moon, and Saul will expect me to sit with him at the table. Therefore say, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem, his city, where there is a sacrifice of his family. If Saul is angry, then I shall know that he would kill me. But if he is not angry, it will be all right. Jonathan said, So shall it be, but it will not be safe for anybody to know anything about it. Come into the field, and I will tell you what to do. Thou shalt remain hidden by the stone, and I will bring a lad and my arrows and bow, and I will shoot an arrow as if firing at a target. And if I say, Run to the lad, is not the arrow beyond thee? Go fetch it. Then thou shalt know that thou must flee from Saul. David's seat was empty at the feast that night, but Saul said nothing. But the next day his seat was empty, and when Saul asked why, Jonathan told him what David had asked him to say. And Saul's anger was kindled, so much so that Jonathan feasted not that day, for he was grieved. And the next morning he went out with his bow and arrows, and the lad, and shot an arrow as if at a mark. Then Jonathan said to the lad, Run! Is not the arrow beyond thee? Haste! Then Jonathan gave his artillery unto the lad, and sent him back to the city. And David came out of his hiding place, and they made a covenant together, for Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Then David had to flee to Naoth in Ramah, and Jonathan went back to the city. Question. What do you know of Richelieu? Parentheses. Book studied. Mrs. Creighton's First History of France. End parentheses. E. Age 10. Answer partly written partly dictated. Cardinal Richelieu was brought to the French court by the Queen Mother, who thought he would do as she wished, but she was mistaken, for he no sooner was there than he turned against her, for Louis took him into his favor and made him prime minister after he had been there a few weeks. Richelieu was a devoted Catholic, and was determined to put down the Huguenots, or Protestants as we call them, so he laid siege to La Rochelle, the chief town of the Huguenots, who applied to the English for help. Charles sent a fleet to La Rochelle under pretense of helping the Huguenots, but Admiral Pennington, who was in command of the ships, received orders when halfway down the channel to take in French soldiers and sailors at Calais 
and go to the French side. When Admiral Pennington ordered the ships to take in the soldiers, his men mutinied, and he had to go back. Richelieu had thrown up earthworks across the harbor so that it was impossible to get in. Now Rochelle held out bravely, but at last it had to surrender, and out of forty thousand, one hundred forty crawled out, too weak to bury the dead in the streets. La Rochelle was raised to the ground, and never recovered his prosperity. One by one the Huguenot towns surrendered, and thus the Huguenots were destroyed. When Richelieu was made prime minister, the nobles did not like him, because they thought he had too much power. And now, when Louis was ill, the Queen Mother came to him, and in a stormy passion of tears begged Louis to send away his ungrateful servant. Louis promised he would do so, and Richelieu's fall seemed certain. Now all the nobles crowded to the Queen Mother to pay their respects to her, as they thought she would now be the most important person in the government. But one noble, who was wiser than the rest, went to Richelieu and begged to plead his cause before the king. The king promised he would keep him if he would serve him as he had done before. The Queen Mother was foiled and returned to Brussels, where she died. Question. What towns, rivers, and castles would you see in traveling about Warwickshire? Parentheses. Book studied, geographical reader, book three. End parentheses. B, age nine and a half. Answer dictated. Warwick, Kenilworth, Coventry, Stratford, Lymington, and Birmingham are all towns which you would see if you traveled through Warwick. The Avon stretches from north to south of Warwickshire. It has its tributaries, the Leam, upon which Leamington is situated. There is a castle of Warwick, and Coventry, and Kenilworth. Warwick is the capital of the county. It has a famous castle, whose high and lofty towers stand upon the bank of the river Avon. Coventry is a very old town. It also has a beautiful castle, where the fair Lady Godiva and her father used to live, about whom I suppose you have read. Stratford is called the Swan on the Avon, because that is where Shakespeare, the great poet, was born and died, and this is a little piece of poetry about him. Where his first infant lays, sweet Shakespeare sung, where the last accents faltered on his tongue. The river Avon takes its rise in the Vale of Evesham, then winds through pleasant fields and meadows till it comes to the south of Warwickshire and then it becomes broad and stately and flows on up to Coventry, where the Leam branches off from it. And then it becomes narrower and narrower until it gets out of Warwickshire and stops altogether at Naseby. Question. How many kinds of bees are there in a hive? What does each do? Tell how they build the comb. Parentheses. Book studied. Fairyland of Science. End parentheses. F. Age 10. Answer dictated. Three kinds. The drones, or males. The workers, or females. And the queen bee. The drone is fat. The queen is long and thin. And the workers are small and slim. The queen bee lays the eggs. The worker bee brings the honey in and makes the cell. And the drones wait to be fed. On a summer's day you see something hanging on a tree like a plum pudding. This is a swarm of bees. 
you will soon see some one come up with a hive turn it upside down shake the bough gently and they will fall in they will put some clean calico quickly over the bottom of the hive and turn it back over on a bench the bees first close up every little hole in the hive with wax then they hang on to the roof clinging on to one another by their leg then one comes away and scrapes some wax from under its body and bites it in its mouth until it is pulled out like ribbon this she plasters on the roof of the hive then she flies out to get honey and comes home to digest it hanging from the roof and in twenty-four hours this digested honey turns to wax then she goes through the same process again next the nursing bees come and poke their heads into this wax bite the wax away parentheses, twenty bees do this before one hole is ready to make a cell end parentheses. other bees are working on the other side at the same time each cell is made six-sided so as to take up the least wax and the smallest space when the cells are made the bees come in with honey in their honey bag or first stomach they can easily pass the honey back through their mouths into the cells it takes many bees to fill one cell so they are hard at work g age nine written by child composition on the opening of parliament the opening of parliament by king edward the seventh and queen alexandria was rather grand first they drove to the houses of parliament in a grand state carriage which has been used by george the third and then when they got there they had to robe in a certain room in great big robes all edged with ermine fur and with huge trains queen alexandra had an evening dress on and king edward a very nice kingly sort of suit parentheses, which was nearly covered up by his robes end parentheses. and then they walked along to the real houses of parliament where the members really sit then the king made a speech to open parliament and other people made speeches too and everything was done with grandeur and stateliness such as would befit a king may parliament long be his End of Appendix 2, Class 2